Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Thanks for that roller coaster. Really attacked my integrity. Tried to set up Brit. Think he's gone, but that was weird. My name's Skyler, director of the college ministry here at the Salt Company. I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. Um, would you pray with me before we get started here? Father God, the church isn't a building. The church is a people. We, every single day of our lives, until we die, will need your spirit to fill us and your word to change us. We want to be transformed by the Bible. We want to be transformed to know what it looks like to walk with you. Help us this morning to do that, to walk with you uh, give us eyes to see the fight going on around us, the battle that is taking place for our souls, and give us a desire to fight sin and put it to death. It's in Jesus' name, amen. If you guys have your Bibles or your phones, please open them up to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. That's where we're going to be anchored. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. While you're doing that, I want to ask a question. How do you get rid of a body? Nope, not a little rhetorical. Thanks for hand raisers in the back. <laughs> not, now, this got weird at the 8 a.m. Like, you didn't kill anybody. Hypothetical, you open your front door and there's a body on your doorstep. I don't know. But what's a little more concerning than me asking that question is some of the responses that I got from some of you when I asked and people on our staff. Nobody said, just dig a hole and bury it. Nobody. I got dismember it and send the pieces into space, wood chipper, burn it, and I destroy it. I mean, it, was, it, it disturbed me to hear the answers that people had. But there's something below that. Why would you need to get rid of a body that you just come across? I don't know. Again, I don't know how it got there. Worst case scenario, it turns into a zombie and eats you. But that's unlikely. So what will probably happen is that body will decay and start to reek, and it'll start to mess up your life in really particular ways. So get rid of the body so you don't have those problems. Why do I ask that question? According to Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, we have this body that we lug around called the old self, the old man, the old woman, the old Schuyler, the old you that didn't love God and loved sin, and although we've been changed, transformed to love God and hate sin, there's this body that we lug around, the desires of the old man that want us to keep living like we did before we knew Jesus. And what Paul tells us to do is to kill it, get rid of it, destroy it. If you take away anything from this morning, Colossians 3, 5 through 9, the point that Paul is making is kill our sin or it will kill us. It's going to be a fun one this morning. Kill our sin or it will kill us. Primarily, we will see that in three points. Mortification with a motivation. That's point one. Point two, kill our sexual sin. Point three, kill our social sin. Mortification means to kill sin. So if you hop in with me, verse five, mortification with a motivation. We're looking at nine words for this point, one half of a sentence. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. We're going to break this sentence down and figure out what exactly does Paul want us to know this morning. We want to start with the word therefore. English teachers and college students that 
are forced to be in an English class, when we see the word therefore, we ask the question, what's the therefore? Wow, three people. Great. What's the therefore, therefore? What we want to do when we see therefore is look at what preceded that text to figure out what's going on. When we look, read verses one through four with me. Verse one, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul gives us in this section of text, one through four, the reason why the therefore is there in verse five, he gives us two imperatives and three promises. Imperatives are commands. He says, seek the things that are above and set your minds on the things that are above. So that's the command. That's what Paul wants from us. Seek the things that are above, set your minds on the things that are above. The things that are above are not just Christ, because if you notice in the text, it says where Christ is. It's a location. It's the kingdom of God. Set your minds on the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Take your Bible and flip. For me, it's one page to the left. For you, it might be two or three pages, but Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, written by the same guy, Paul, to the church in Philippi. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So when we think about setting our minds on the kingdom of God, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, pure, joy, commendable, honorable, worthy of praise, setting our minds on those things. Why do we do that? Because Paul's reminding us that our identity is a citizen of heaven. We're not citizens of the earth anymore. When I'm gone overseas or on a business trip or anytime I'm not at home at night with my wife, you can bet that at some point during that day, I've got my phone out FaceTiming my wife. Why? Two reasons. One, to see beans, the salt company mascot, my corgi. Two is because when I FaceTime my wife, I get a taste of what home is like. I get reminded of what it's like to be home. I get to hear my wife, hear how her day's been, hear what's going on around the house, and I get a taste of what it's like to be home with her in my home. Paul's telling us, think daily, hourly, frequently about our home because we're not citizens of this earth anymore. We're citizens of heaven. Seek and set your minds on your home. That's what Paul's saying. That's his imperative. But he doesn't just leave it at that. He gives us three promises about our past, our present, and our future. Our past. Look here in verse 2. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Three, for you have died. For you have died. The old Skylar, the old you that didn't live for God, loved sin, has died because Jesus died. Jesus died on the cross to take our sins. When we trust in him, he gives us a new life. And that old self, it's dead. You've died. That's your past. You have died. Presently, though, there's a problem. And, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we've got this new life, but it's hidden. What does it mean that it's hidden? It means that this old self doesn't just go away. We lug him along Every single step of our lives, with it seeping into our hearts, trying to get us to live exactly like we did before Christ. 
We're hidden. And we can feel this. I mean, I can't go to the grocery store and see the cashier or the guy walking his dog by my street and say, that's a believer. That's a believer. I can't even look at the heart posture of us. We can't look into each other's hearts because we're tainted by the old self. We're tainted by the flesh that is pulling us away from Christ. We're hidden right now. Presently, we are hidden, slowly being freed from the power of sin. But the third one, his promise, is about the future, and that that is not our fate. Our fate is that when Christ, who is your life, appears, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See the contrast between hidden and appears? Yes, it is true. Right now, it's hidden. Christ will return or we will die and be face to face with him. And the burden of our sin and our life, the old self will be lifted off our shoulders like the weight of the world has been lifted. And just like Christ will appear in glory, we will appear with him in glory. That's our life. So what in verse five is the therefore, therefore? It's a reminder of your identity before we get to activity. You're a citizen of heaven who will appear with Christ in glory. So how must we live now? That's what the therefore is there for. Keep going with our nine words. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Earthly. Let's talk about earthly. What is earthly talking about? Well, look at verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Everywhere in all of human history, language has been used to repeat concepts to get a point across. He says the same word, earth and earthly. He's trying to make a point here. Do you notice how not only are we to set our minds on what's above, but we're also to set our minds not on the earth. They're against each other. They're directly in conflict with one another. Go with me if you would. I think this is probably going to be like 12 pages to your left. Galatians 5. Galatians 5. Verse 17. No, maybe no place in the Bible explains this battle, this collision happening between the flesh and the spirit. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. There is a battle going on between the things above and the things on earth the spirit, and the flesh. So listen, this is important. Church is not a cruise ship where we just kick it back with our friends, wait for the next adventure to come, and do whatever makes us happy. But what this is saying is that there is a cosmic battle going on for our lives. We're to be not on a cruise ship, but on a battleship, linking arms with one another, head on a swivel, because there's the flesh the things of this earth that is actively trying to destroy you. And I'm not here as the general who's trying to command the troops. I'm a fellow soldier that hopes that maybe, just maybe, I can shake a couple people here to wake up and see whether you like it or not, believe it or not, there's a battle going on for your soul. In this moment, there's a battle going on for your soul. Let's keep going with our nine words. What's earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Why is it significant? In you. Because our culture tells us, and every other religion on the planet tells us, that human beings are inherently good, are inherently not bad. That the reason why we sin is because externally things tempt us 
and lead us to evil. And if we were on an island with no temptation, we would develop something that's good. We naturally want to be God-honoring and good. But what Paul's saying in Colossians and what the whole Bible says is that those earthly things, the things that are wicked and opposed to God, are deep within us, woven into our very nature. They are in us. Why is that significant? To illustrate this, I got a story. When I was in college, I was doing this like, I don't even honestly know what it was. It was like a seminar or something. Some like influential guy who had a bunch of land, we were like at his house and he was like building a fence while we were there. It was a, like, I don't, I don't know. But I'm walking with this guy and he's got a shovel and he's talking to us and he's, we're just like walking along this fence line. I don't remember what he was talking about. And um, it's like leadership or something. And in the middle of our conversation, he like, he's like, oh, hold on. And he, he like sprints with a shovel, boom, and chops the head off of a snake. Like, I, I'm not a country boy. I don't own a pair of boots. My idea of hard labor was when I was 12, I vacuumed every day to save up money for a Nintendo Wii. Like, that's what hard labor was. So I'm like horrified. <laughs> like, what? What did you, dude, what's your problem? And he's like, well, you see. If it's made its home, it'll come back. I was like, okay, I mean, that makes sense. If it made its home, it's coming back. Here's the problem with the earthly things being within us is that you can't tuck them away. You can't hide them. You can't move them. You can't suppress them because they are within our nature, which means if we just try to hide from our sin, if we just try to push it away for a little bit, it will come back home because it's in us. There's only one solution. There's only one thing to do with that old self, and it's the first part of our nine words. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Kill it, dismember it, shoot it into space, burn it, bury it, get rid of it. Kill our sin. So let's look at, specifically, what are we to kill according to Colossians 3? We're going to look at killing our sexual sin and killing our social sin. Killing our sexual sin. Keep going in verse 5, part B. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So what's, what's common about these things? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. They all have a sexual undertone, some of them explicitly, but like covetousness isn't always sexual. It can be very easily desiring something that we don't have and wanting that sexually. Like that's sexual, but all of them have a sexual undertone in them. And if you see, they're all connected together. Like they all have a relationship with one another. Sexual impurity is fornication, any immoral sexual relation that we have. Impurity is any thought or deed or action or desire that comes from what? Evil desire and passion. It's fueling those. Covetousness is idolatry, looking at the things that we don't have and worshiping them as if that would satisfy us in only a place where God can satisfy us. And that idolatry, I'm afraid, is the religion of thousands who masquerade as Christians all over that we worship sex. 
and say that we worship God. And that's a problem, and it needs to be killed. Now, when we look at this, though, I want us to see that the sexual sin is being covered on every spectrum of the church. Like, Paul's covering everything. No stone is left unturned. He's talking about actions and desires, thoughts and deeds. I mean, he's covering everything from binging pornography late at night to glancing on the street to a workplace friendship that's too friendly to clicking and looking at social media where we shouldn't, to daydreams, to night dreams, the whole spectrum. And it's classified as what? Sexual immorality. And can we pause for a second and just say that we feel that this kills us? We feel that? Like, we feel the shame of the next day after messing up. We feel the weight of hurting people that we love. We feel the burden of I, if these people only knew what I was involved in, they wouldn't love me. Like, we feel that. And it weighs on us. Talk about lugging around the old man. Like, we feel that. Unfortunately, though, I don't know if we feel it enough. And that's what Paul says. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. <sighs> like, we need to, like, that's concerning. Like, we need to kind of figure out what that's trying to say. Because that sounds like an issue. Does that mean that me, as a Christian, could engage in any act of sexual immorality, and because of that, that means that the wrath of God is coming now for me? Two things I want to draw out from this. One, it's that God hates sin. Like, he really hates sin in every way. Imagine with me for a minute that you come home to your significant other having an affair with you with somebody else. Now, I know that some people here have been a victim of that, and I want to remind you that God hates that, and I'm not making light of it, but you have a right to be angry. But what about God who made us, satisfies us perfectly, and made us to be in communion with him, and every day he proverbially comes home to us worshiping something else instead of him? He hates sin. The second thing to draw out from that, though, is that in Christ, every drop of our sexual sin has been taken on the cross. Every single drop. The wrath of God does not come for children of God because it came for Jesus, and he took it all. He took it all. So everything that you've ever done, sexually immoral, Jesus covered it. I want us to notice, though, I want us to notice that there's two things in our text that Paul talks about are coming, like urgently coming. The wrath of God, and then in verse 4, Christ, who is your life, when he appears. You see the urgency of this fight, of the battle? You see it? The wrath of God is coming. Christ is coming. There's an urgency, that, and what Paul's saying is that the wrath of God is not coming for you because it went for Christ. He took it. But why then would we live in a way that incites God to anger? It's, he's coming. Like Jesus is coming back. Why then would we live in a way that's not honoring to the one who saved us? Let us not live in a sexually immoral life and let's fight it for the glory of God. Now, I want to get super, super practical here. 
Because I know, without a doubt, that there is at least somebody sitting in the, like sitting in the crowd right now that's thinking, yeah, I have been killed by my sexual sin, and it's time for me to kill it. Like, I'm done living as a slave to the old self. I'm done with it. So, super practical. What do we do to fight sexual sin? And I've got three things for you. Cut, confess, and change. Cut, confess, and change. First one, cut. Cut off the head, just like that weird guy did on the farm with a shovel. Cut off the head of sexual sin. This is going to look different for different stages, like for different struggles. If it's online temptations, pornography, continually running back to, the head needs to be cut off. What does that mean? Get rid of the ability for your phone to access the internet, which is possible to do. We have a, a, a software that we use to the church called Accountable to You. You can get that through the church Download it onto all your devices, set up accountability partners, and they see the things that you search that are inappropriate, which means that you're not going to search for things inappropriate because they see it. You think to yourself, man, that is an invasion of my privacy, or man, I can't live without Safari on my phone. That's what I said five years ago when I took it off, and I'm still breathing. Like, it's still cut off the head. Why? Because our sexual desire, if even given an ounce of ability to stay alive, We'll take it and run. We have to starve our sexual sin. Starve it. Kill it. That's cut. Confess is to find other people in your life that you can confess to regularly. And that confession should look like calling sin what it is. Not, oh yeah, my thought life sucked this week. But calling it what it is like Paul did. I was sexually immoral this week. I engaged in idolatry, and I want to be forgiven of that. And it never comes back as shame, as like, how could you? Because true biblical confession is for a brother or sister to look at you and say, hey, I'm right there with you, and Christ is enough for it. I don't look at you any different, and neither does he. And moving on from there. Accountability works best if it's amidst temptation, not after the failure. And I'm not just talking to college students here. I'm not just talking to men here. I'm talking to everybody here, all ages, because I know from 70 to 12, sexual immorality is invading our hearts. Cut, confess. Oh, by the way, if you're like, well, how do I do that? We have city groups for that. Join a city group. That's the point. Community, confession, find healing and fight your sin together. Link arms so you're not alone. Join a city group. Last one, change. Don't do it now, but when, when you have a time, take out your phone and write down verses that you're trying to memorize that show you how great Jesus is, your favorite verses that point to Jesus. Write down on your phone the things that you love about your significant other, and then write down a few sentences explaining the gospel to yourself. So now, with those in place, cut, confess, change, now temptation, the earthly things in us, start to sprout up, but we can't access anything. We've cut the head off. Our accountability partners are checking in and reminding us regularly to check our phone to replace that desire with a desire for Christ. That's as tangibly as I can get to point us to what does it look like to fight 
sexual immorality. Cut, confess, change. Now I want us to look, that's sexual immorality. I want us to look now at the social sins, not sexual sins, but social sins. Our third point, which is going to start in verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So if we're like, man, that was heavy, don't worry, Paul's got more stuff for us. And if you got through the sexual sins and thought, yeah, doing pretty well, nope, not now. And if you get through both of these and you're like, yeah, I'm doing pretty well, you're lying to yourself and that's on the list. So we're on here. What do you notice that's similar about the, the things in the list here, though? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and, obs- and obscene talk from your mouth. From your mouth is the key there. These are all about not just deep within us, but sins that hurt the relationships around us. It's not just sin that's living deep in our hearts, but it's sin that hurts those around us. God made us to be in community in relationship, and those sins, anger, wrath, slander, malice, obscene talk, they damage the relationships around us. Anger, outbursts of wrath. I mean, a lot of households are led with this foot first. A mistake is made, yelling. Expectations not met, shouting, cursing, violence. Anger is a problem that destroys relationships, destroys trust in houses, friendships, families, and it usually affects those closest to us, but it never stops there. It always goes wider. Slander. Yeah, you're made in the image of God, but I'm going to cut you down in front of others and take your worst qualities and put them on display for the whole world to see, either to make me look better or to make you look worse. That's slander. Obscene talk. Usually things that we say that lead people to ask the question, do you kiss your grandmother with that mouth? Things that we would say that would make the kids' ministry be like, maybe they shouldn't serve with us. And we know what obscene talk sounds like, crude jokes. We, we know what obscene talk looks like, sounds like. And lying. God loves truth, and it's, it's deforming the truth to usually inflate ourselves in some way. Do not lie to one another. All these things, they impact the relationships of people around us. I want to take a minute, though, because usually we hear sexual sins, social sins. It's kind of a tear here. At least I'm not there, you know? At least I'm not struggling with that. These are kind of like JV sins. We'll cover these later. But I want to, I want to give you two things about these sins that are important to know. One, anger, malice, wrath, slander, obscene talk, they distort and destroy the gospel. So when you yell at your daughter when they've made a mistake, eventually she's going to realize that a father gets mad when she makes a mistake, but that's not true. Her heavenly father is patient and kind and loving. And that extends farther than children, friends. Typically we interact with people in the way that we see that God views us. He's patient and kind which should lead us to patience and kindness with others. Slander, saying, yeah, God, I know that God made you, cares about you, loves you, but I don't. 
That's a problem, directly contrary to the gospel that we proclaim. When we slander, we say, you're not important to me. You might be important to God, but not important to me. Slander. Obscene talk, corruption. Jesus talked about this. He said, it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but what comes out of their mouths that shows their heart. Obscene talk, contrary to the gospel that we proclaim, Jesus changes lives, brings sinners from death to life. It's contrary to it. The second, so it distorts the gospel. The second thing is that the callousness of these sins, typically in our culture, don't actually get, you'll never get stopped if you're callously angry. So what it means to be calloused is, example, if you spend hours a day listening to the same category of people that slander and are angry at anyone that disagrees with them, eventually you will become a calloused, angry jerk who argues with people about the same things as they will. It hardens our heart. When we constantly see on social media slander and anger and wrath and malice, that's going to callous us and begin to affect the relationships of people around us. It will. And so those, it's not a tear. It's not a tear. These need to be killed just like this needs to be killed. So I want to, again, get uber practical, fighting social sins. The first one is that there's an event that comes around every four years that makes family reunions at Thanksgiving a little worse. It's an election year. And this year, particularly, largely due to social media, the only voices that we hear are those that are angry, filled with wrath, filled with malice, filled with slander, filled with obscene talk, and polarized to the extreme. Practically, we should be able to look on social media, we should be able to eavesdrop in conversations and know who's a born-again believer. While the, literally the rest of the entire world is filled with polarizing and slander and anger, we are not. So what if, social experiment, for the next month, we didn't do that in any conversations that we had, and we actually used those political conversations to have gospel conversations, saying Jesus didn't always promise us this country, and he's sovereign over everything. And be able to sprinkle that in our conversations. So what does it look like to kill that sin, to put it away? This is a very opportune time to do it. And then with anger, how do we fight anger? Particularly, almost obnoxiously apologize to the people. Not like, oh, I know you said you forgive me, but I'm still sorry. No, I'm talking about when you are angry at somebody, go to them and apologize. As frequently as you are angry, apologize to those that you are angry to, towards my wife, I've promised her that when I'm angry at her and explode in anger, it might take me a while to cool down. But even if I wasn't wrong, I'm going to go and sit her down and say, I'm sorry for being angry. Why? Because I'm reminding myself, I'm showing myself that my sin hurts people. Do I do it perfectly? No. But when I my sin hurts people, and I don't want to hurt my wife. She shows me grace. We move on from there. But apologize to the people that you're angry with. And eventually... It will start to reverse where you'll be less angry because you are apologizing regularly for that. Apologize for your anger. That's what it looks like to fight social sins. Now, when we look at all of these, 
I mean, that was a lot of stuff. We just covered a bunch of like practical steps, a lot of stuff. I think that some of us are going to be like, man, I'm going to go think about it for a week. And what if I did none of it? That sounds good. Not the best plan. Would not recommend it. Here's my recommendation. For sexual sin, take one step. And that step is usually confessing. Finding somebody in your life and saying, this is what I'm struggling with. Like another believer, this is what I'm struggling with. I need help. Take the first step. Social sin, take the first step. Talk to somebody with you. Link arms with people around you. They can say, okay, let's do this together. When I was in college addicted to pornography, my first step to fighting that was sitting with a group of guys, and finally the spirit was like, you got to say it. I was like, okay, hey guys, I'm struggling with this. And everyone was like, yeah, us too. Let's fight it together. And then change started to happen. Take one step. Because then you'll take another step. And another step. And another step. That's the Christian life. That's the battle that we're engaged in. It's not a week-long sprint until we come back next week. It's step after step, day after day, fighting our sin fighting what is earthly in us. We, until we see Jesus, will be lugging around this old self, fighting him or her every single day that we can until we finally do see our king. But according to Colossians, we can't just live our lives with that burdening us down. It's time to fight. It's time to fight our sin. City light. Let's fight. Father God, you're so good to us. God, we were filled with sexual immorality and impurity and evil desires and passion and covetousness, which is idolatry. We were filled with anger and wrath and malice and slander Lord, we were filled with sin to our brims because of the earthly things lived deep within us, and we had no warrant whatsoever for you to come and do anything with a broken vessel like us, and yet you did. You sent your son, who did none of those things, perfectly pure, perfectly clean, perfectly peaceful, never slandered, never talked poorly, was never filled with anger, at another, and he switched spots with us. He took, the, he took the spot of the sexually immoral. He took the spot of the angry. He took the spot of the slanderer, and he gave us the spot of the clean and the pure. God, you're so good to us. You're so good to us. Give us strength, Lord, to fight our sin. Fueled out of that, our identity. Give us strength to fight our sin and battle it. We don't want to do anything that you hate, Lord. We want to fight. Help us to do it. Please bless the rest of our worship that we would honor you as the one who came and saved us. Equip us for this week as we go out and fight. It's in Jesus' name, amen.